Hey everybody, I'm Stephen Casimiro from Adventure Journal. If you're not familiar with Adventure Journal, I started it in 2008 as a blog when I was the West Coast editor of National Geographic Adventure. And in 2010, it evolved into an online commercial magazine. And then in 2016, because I really missed print, we launched it as a gorgeous, beautiful printed quarterly. And uh, today is our very first podcast. We have been talking about it. How long, Justin? At least, I think we, we, we actually, people don't know this, we came up with the term podcast. We just uh, haven't quite gotten around to recording one yet, but we started, we came up with the idea for doing podcasts. Ira Glass called me once and asked, how do, I'm thinking about doing a recorded sort of story thing, and I kind of filled him in on how I would do it, and we just kind of dropped the ball. So here we are. This is Justin Hausman. Justin is our senior editor. He takes care of all of the digital content. Uh, so if you've been reading our newsletter, if you're one of the 60,000 plus people that's reading the newsletter, you can thank that guy because without him, none of that would happen. And uh, yeah, so we're, we are stoked to get this rolling. Um, we have been talking about it for a long time. Podcast was one of the many terms that we forgot to trademark. We will try not to make <laughs> that mistake again. <laughs> Justin, tell me what's going on with you and Adventures. Well, I uh, it's September, which means that's my annual, oh, crap. <laughs> I haven't done any of the things I was supposed to do this summer. So I've been trying to do a backpacking trip in Yosemite for like at least the last month. I've, gone, I've probably spent $200 on permits, just getting the permits, and then I can't go for one reason or another. A lot of it has been because it's been just absolutely monsooning up in the Sierra. And anyway, so this this weekend I have another permit, and I was going to go backpacking until I I last night I just realized I just really like eating good food at camp. So uh, there's a great campground at Tioga Lake, just past Tuolumne Meadows, so I can go hopefully nab a spot there. I'm going to leave at like three in the morning on Friday, uh, try and get there early, get a spot set up, just a luxurious camp situation because really I, I i do really enjoy that sort of a thing get my cot set up my my stove set up and then just go hike and and day hike and fly fish uh it's gonna be great it's my, probably my last weekend without the without the kids uh while it's still warm enough to do this so i'm pretty i'm pretty amped that sounds epic do you know what the weather's gonna be spends like six highs of high 60s lows of like 31 32 that's not too bad uh tioga lake's like 9700 feet it's up there so, but that's, I mean, that's nice. You kind of like, I'm already, I mean, I'm, I'm wearing a flannel. Like I'm already, I'm ready. You know, it's, it's time. I'm ready for some, some crisp mornings. You know, I'm looking forward to having a parka and a fire and stuff like that. I haven't had a fire yet camping this, this summer. Cause it's been, you know, hot and I don't really do campfires anymore, but this will be nice. This will be That great. sounds wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Hey, you know, on the permit thing, I got to give a shout out to the new issue of AJ, AJ 30, which we actually have a story about, how uh, not just how difficult it is to get permits, but the junk fees that the company behind recreation.gov is adding to those. Um, it's, it's scandalous actually how much money they're making. Yeah. It's, it's also hard to book. It's hard to book a site after reading that. Cause you're just aware of what's, you know, you're like every time you're doing it, you're like, well, here goes five bucks to this giant consulting firm. It is, but it's not one of those situations where we're powerless because there's a bill up before Congress and, and Joe Biden, who's current president, can actually make some change through his anti-junk fee initiative. So there's some things that can be done just because permits for hikes and other things are difficult to get. It, we've, we've made it this way. We can unmake it this way. So 
Well, my last trip was, uh, so we are recording this in the week after Labor Day. And uh, for Labor Day, I went out to the Mojave Desert. And um, you guys might have heard about that uh, hurricane slash tropical storm that was threatening Southern California. The forecast for uh, the part of the world where the tent is, uh, is this kind of this tent is set up is... Uh, it was expected to get seven inches. Um, there's a little parcel out there and, um, it's, it's gorgeous. And I set this canvas tent up in, um, in spring of this year and, uh, and left it up. And I thought, you know, I'm going to see how this rolls through this storm. And, uh, so last weekend I went out to see if it survived or if it had blown all the way to blown all the way to the Colorado river. Seven inches has to be like the, annual precipitation down there right or what, maybe 10 like that what do you what do you get in a year in the mojave i don't know but it would not surprise me if it's significantly less than that so the tent let me tell you about it it's uh it's made by kodiak canvas and um i first got this uh idea about canvas tents when i passed a hunting camp in the, the uh, san juan mountains of southwest colorado like that looks really cool and, uh, and so we got access to this land out in the des, and I thought, you know what, maybe like, let's just sort of like scratch this canvas tent itch. So the one I ended up getting is a 12 by 12. Um, it's made in the U S it, uh, it weighs a lot. It's a hundred pounds. Um, but I thought, you know, this is, it's so radically different than all the nylon tents that I've ever had. It kind of takes me back to this huge canvas one that my parents, like a three room tent that my parents had when <laughs> I was little. And, um, I thought, you know, I'm just, I'm going to go for this and see what it's like. How much was it? Uh, well, so canvas Kodiak canvas makes two sizes. It's a square. It's, I got the 12 by 12, which costs a grand, like an even thousand bucks. It's not bad. It's not bad. No, no, it's not too bad. And, um, the smaller 10 by 10 is 800. And, you know, you can easily get an ultralight tent that's, you know, nylon yeah. tent that costs 700 bucks. You set it up by yourself, though? <laughs> I, did. I did. I've set it up twice now by myself. The first one was in December of 22. Very, very cold and windy. Um, the second time was in spring when it was just windy. Uh, yeah, I did. Um, it was pretty entertaining. Um, but it, you know, there were no major mishaps. It's, you know, the thing about this tent is it's, it's a simple square and all the poles are external. So if you've ever figured out like a nylon tent with internal sleeving and, you know, poles, multi-poles that are attached through, um, shock cord and all that, like you can figure this out. It, really the only difficult part was setting up the two main poles, um, that hold up the ceiling. So the, the headroom is about seven and a half feet. And, um, you know, it's shaped like, think, imagine a cabin or a house that a kid would draw. It also kind of looks like a, like a, like where the sort of war plans are being drawn up by, like, I feel like sweeping the side of this canvas tent door open, you want to walk inside, there's going to be a table with like battle maps on it. It kind of has like a military vibe. It, it does. It has a very old school vibe to it. Um, Safari maybe ish, yeah. you know, like you, yeah. you want to have, be, yeah, you kind of want to have like a great coat and you walk in and you take <laughs> off your Australian bush hat and it's, it's dripping with rain or whatever. And like tea, I need tea. <laughs> and, uh, so it, it is very, um, nostalgic in a way. 
but it's also really cozy. So one of the things that I immediately discovered was canvas versus nylon. Like it, it doesn't flap in the wind. Um, it doesn't rustle. You run your handle on it and it just feels really nice like yeah. a cotton t-shirt. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, uh, it, it has a, like these kind of has a Wes Anderson vibe. Like this looks like a little, I mean that, that, which kind of, totally flies in the face of a sort of a military thing but it does feel like something that would be in a wes anderson movie like this is how this is what like edward norton steps out of when he's uh at moonrise kingdom you know like as the camp counselor leader like it's got a very it's totally old school moonrise kingdom nostalgic vibe to it yeah it totally is it totally is in fact moonrise kingdom is on my list to rewatch since i've got this whole thing set up um and we've kind of uh, we've decked it out a little bit. Like we have a couple of like cheap Ikea, uh, rugs, you know, so it feels a little cozier. We have a tent, we have two cots. Um, we have one from REI and one from Woods Canada. Um, we have a couple of like big sort of camp, easy chairs. Um, 12 by 12 is bigger than my office. Like it's, it yeah. feels really spacious, not exactly palatial, but it feels spacious and it nominally sleeps eight. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's been a really interesting experience and um you know the storm only ended up dropping uh uh i don't know like two and a half three inches you know and the side of like the the wind had sort of pulled some of the stakes out and the guy lines and so the the one side had collapsed but it was still standing and it was basically dry inside um it definitely helps that it's in the desert now you you have one in your backyard, but it's it's not like a cabin style, right? Yeah, and I was just gonna say, I bet the desert is gonna help that tremendously. Like where I am, it's in Northern California, uh, quite a bit obviously wetter than a desert, but wetter than most places, generally speaking. And uh, we have one in the backyard we've had up all summer long. It's gotten rain on a couple times, but I mean, maybe an inch, maybe two inches total. You can't tell. It looks a little dirty because it's been up all, all year long, but it's it's a blast i mean ours is a is a bell tent so it's a different shape it's got a, a circular base it's a thir it's 13 feet in diameter and it goes up it actually has a really high roof line i'm not it, it's i think it is about eight feet um and then uh but it has like a giant pole in the middle and one in the front you can set up by yourself there's no other poles um but it's I, I don't know about yours it's it's enough of a pain in the ass where I, I don't think I'm doing it more than like once a season you know or, or you know or if I if the family if we were gonna go camping at some like epic spot that we were gonna be at for ten days and maybe that's like what we do every year like I would go you know I would take it down from the backyard and set it up there but it's definitely enough of a pain in the ass for for me to set up that I, I don't want to do it all the time I mean which is a shame because it's way nicer than our we have a Nemo six person wagon top tent that's like a super complicated high end you know fancy pants synthetic material tent which is great but I could set that up in like 10 minutes you know this thing right. this thing is a chore which is too bad because it would be super fun to take on a regular camping trip no question well i want to encourage you to think about this and you know maybe if there's a, ever a time when you want to move on from a different tent and and anybody who's thinking about nylon versus canvas it's no you're not going to take it for a weekend of car yeah. camping you know it's it's just it's too much but if you know i have a big tent like your nemo and um if i were going to be in a place for a week and i had help setting this up and i had room in my car which i do yeah. i would probably take this because the level of comfort is so much higher you you kind of feel like you're in a room and if you're car camping yeah. then why shouldn't you really enjoy yourself and there's some other elements about it that really make it pretty pretty fantastic it has 
Um, six giant mesh windows with zippered covers. The roof is white, so like the, it doesn't feel dank or manky or dark during the day. And even at night, like once you've turned all the lights out, the starlight really catches that that oh, uh, cool. in that white. Yeah, it's it's really rad. Um, it has uh, it has a lifetime warranty, which is really hard to find <laughs> these days. And one of the the two other cool things that I really love about it is it it has a um, a port for a chimney. So if you um, want to put a stove and keep it up all winter and keep it nice and cozy, it's designed for that. Like it's a classic, they call them often call them hot tents. Um, and then for another, I think it's 400 bucks or so and another 40 some pounds, you can add an eight by eight porch on the front. And we spend almost all of our time actually in that porch. Yeah. We, it has walls that come off so you can just use it as a roof. Um, we cook out there, we, we read out there, we draw, we sit and eat chips and guacamole. Um, it's a great place to put your potty if you want to use it as a nighttime spot so you don't have to go too far from the tent. I've really been impressed with the whole thing. So if you ever get to the point, you know, especially as your kids get bigger and they need more room, it might be something that you want to think about. Well, especially once they're big enough to set it up without dad. That's really what I'm waiting for is girls set the tent up. Dad's going to be doing any literally anything else. And then that's, that's when I think we're ready. I think I would be terrified to light a fire in that stove in there. I realize that people do this all the time. You know, every, every, every hunting cabin looks like this or every hunting tent looks like this, but I would be so terrified of dying of carbon monoxide poisoning in that, in that thing. Well, you know, I, I did experiment with one and, um, it was a disaster because of user error. So I'm not really That's what I'm afraid of. On about that, <laughs> which is not surprising. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, you know, I found the ventilation to be really great. I, I, I just need to learn that thing. And people use them all the time. And yeah. there are, there are vents. Die. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people, people really die. The risks. Yeah. Ah, you know, they're. So, um, yeah. So something to think about. Okay. Mm -hmm. We're going to wrap up talking about gear and we're going to be right back. The key to happiness is pretty simple. Work less, play more, drink coffee. At Long Weekend, we designed our blends to be up for anything. Unfussy, always delicious, and roasted to order. Get your beans today at longweekend.coffee. Adventure Journal is a quarterly print magazine featuring inspiring stories, incredible photography, and fantastic design. If you love traveling, the outdoors, and adventure, You'll love AJ in print. Support independent media and subscribe at subscribetoaj.com. Welcome back. Justin, you're a Peter Heller fan. Indeed. Maybe yes. his biggest. Maybe. Well, I don't know. You want to arm wrestle for it? So yeah, Peter Heller, Peter Heller is a writer. He is an author of nonfiction books and fiction books. He uh, got his start, kind of like a lot of us uh, outdoor writers. He freelanced for, my, I'm not sure all the magazines, but probably outside Men's Journal, you know, the usual suspects. Um, he would take trips on expeditions and then he would write about them. And he actually grew up uh, fascinated and, and beguiled by poetry. And he started writing um, fiction. And I'm a huge fan. Justin's a huge fan. And he has a new book called The Last Ranger, which Justin has read. Damn you. And I have not. Mm -hmm. So tell mm -hmm. me about it. So you actually got me into Peter Heller uh, years ago. 
you, uh, Stephen, you sent, you either, you probably sent me a copy of dog stars and I actually, you, Stephen sends me books all the time without saying anything. So I'll just open a, open the door and there's like a box and there's books in it, which is awesome. And one of them was dog stars, uh, which is, I don't know if that's Peter Heller's first fiction or not, but it's, I God, it's a good, it's a great book. It's one of those books that I've passed out to all my friends. You know, it's, I just adored it so much and I've loved everything he's written since then. Um, but the new one, the last ranger looks like this. Uh, it's very much in the theme with the, what he's done lately. Um, this one is the story of a, uh, He's a park ranger, a, a parking or a parking. He's a park, like a law enforcement ranger. He's a parking lot attendant. Is that what he's you're a saying? parking lot attendant in? Uh, it's thrilling, actually. <laughs> All the tickets he's writing up. <laughs> if anybody <He's>, could <laughs> make a parking lot attendant thrilling, right? it's Peter. Yeah, um, he's a he's a law enforcement ranger in um, Yellowstone, and so he's kind of reluctantly a law enforcement guy. He obviously just wanted a job in the park. Um, so at the beginning of the book, he's he's kind of chasing people away from big animals and, and just kind of rolling his eyes at tourists. Uh, he has a neighbor who's a wolf biologist and the two of them, you know, love to just sit on their decks and talk about wolves in the park and have coffee. And then typical for Heller, something there's a, there's a, you know, there's a weird guy, there's something, you know, some sort of criminal element like wheeze its way in. And now Ren, the, the ranger is off sort of chasing around potential poachers around the park. Uh, that's basically the, without giving much away, that's, that's kind of the, the gist of the book. And, um, he has to kind of push against the, you know, the constraints of his job and, and, but his love of the park. And it's, it's, um, a great book for somebody who loves incredible descriptions of natural places. And that's what I think Heller's so good at. Um, he, uh, you know, his books are, they all kind of take place in a similar spot. At least the ones I've read, they're always in the mountains. Usually the, the protagonist loves to fly fish. So there's lots of descriptions of, you know, beautiful mountain passes and little creeks and, and fly fishing at night and, and the little intricate details that people that spend a lot of time in these wild places, uh, just instinctively understand really quickly. So his books are fantastic for that, but he also just tells a freaking great story. Um, but in Peter, you recognize somebody who sees the things that you've seen out there and who've experienced yeah. the things that you've seen out there. And so, you know, he's, you can tell that this is coming not just from a place of love and a place of understanding, but also somebody who seems to have experienced the natural world in a lot of the ways that you have. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He's clearly, he's clearly writing about things that he's actually done. I mean, like, you know, weaved around, a fictional tale, something he hasn't done. But I mean, I have no doubt that when he's describing places, these are real places that he likes to spend time at, um, and has actually had these, these moments, which is, which is clear. I, I wanted to read a little bit, just a few lines. Um, again, the, the parts that really speak to me, at least this summer in this book have been when he's fishing. Um, but he has this great, this great piece here. Um, sometimes if the fish was exhausted, he held it gently into the current with a lightly cupped hand and let the gills work and let it rest until it wriggled free and lost itself in the shadows of the stones. He lost himself, too. Who knew how long he fished? He didn't keep track. Not of the path of the sun, or how many fish, or of the quiet elation. He forgot the conversations of the morning, the night before, forgot even his name, or that he should own one. Why should he? For a while he was movement only, and sensation, and a circle of awareness that encompassed the ridges, the mountain, the meadow, and in which his own distinction vanished. And that, that to me, that's... When people ask why I like to fly fish, that's 
that's basically what I say in a far less eloquent way, which is it immerses you in in a creek, in a watershed, in a system in a way that nothing else really does. I mean, you're physically standing in it. You're hopefully touching the fish that are in it. Um, but that, I mean, just now I got kind of chills after reading that. Uh, it's just it's a beautiful description of what it feels like to be in these places. So that's well, you forget I mean, yourself. That's, yeah, right. Exactly. You, you, you forget yourself, and I mean that's what so many of us are chasing out there, and. And that is that moment where, I mean, there's a lot of different ways to put it, you know, you forget yourself or you feel one with everything, but yeah, you kind of get outside your mind and you just become a part of that environment. Yeah. And so, you know, that's all of his books. His books are all, all have that element to them, at least the ones that I've read. I, I think there's one or so I haven't, I haven't picked up yet, but, um, if you've read his, his most recent works, it's, you know, I will say that this one feels more almost almost pulpy than some of his others. It definitely feels like a, like a, it could be a serial, you know, like I don't think any of his books have been turned into movies yet. There's been, there's been uh, rumors that dog stars could be one. You know, I'm kind of curious that, you know, I did notice that with Peter's last two books, um, uh, the river started. So the river, (laughs) I can't get this image out of my head. There, there was a plot twist in the river uh, that was infuriating to a lot of people, including dear Justin, who, uh, what did you do with that book when you got to the plot twist? I threw it on the ground and I, I very, I was very specifically remember this. I was sitting outside up by the Russian river on a little weekend vacation. And I read this part. I was not anticipating it at all. I just closed the book and just threw it on the ground and just yelled no as loud as I could. I've <laughs> never had a reaction like that to something I've been reading ever. I mean, maybe a note that someone sent me that I didn't like, but from a book, nothing like that. It's interesting that you find these going toward a little bit more pulpy because the first book, The Dog Stars, felt very ambitious. It's a, if you can call it an optimistic, dystopian, post-apocalyptic tale, it is. And then he told a story that the main theme was art and relationships and father-daughter and the painter. And then he did a semi-biographical piece, book about his mom. Um, as we wrap this up, is, is there one theme that he's grappling with here? Uh, the river was a little bit about climate change. This is about crowding in parks. What's, what's going on? Yeah. So we didn't, I haven't really mentioned, I mean, a lot of this book is, is, uh, his dealings with this wolf biologist and them tracking wolves around the park. Um, so I do think that like he has a big section here where he runs through how reintroducing wolves has altered Yellowstone for the better in terms of, uh, the what a predator can do uh, for kind of bringing balance back to a landscape. So a lot of it's about balance. And that I think is mostly what his books ultimately are about is like finding a balance between humans and wild spaces. So this one for sure is touching on that through most of it, um, which I think is most, I mean, he, his books are always kind of the same structure. It's always, it's always from a man's point of view, their, their life is usually a little bit untethered except for the wilderness. And that's what you're getting with this one as well, where um, that only thing that he really f- has that's his home is, is, is that place. And that dog stars is like that, right? Like the world has ended, but the, but the protagonist feels comfortable and at home because he has, he has the wilderness. And so that's very clearly what Peter's life is. I mean, there's, I assume, I don't know him, but I mean, that's, it's gotta be pretty much what he's thinking anyway so yeah that's kind of every every one of his books has that sort of vibe but this one could easily be like a netflix series i mean no if it kind of feel i when i was reading it i was sort of imagining um uh justified i don't know if you ever watched that show but about a uh, a u.s marshal um and it, it kind of you could easily see the same sorts of characters a lot of it takes place in a, in a bar with you know just kind of seedy characters and stuff so it, it would be a fun it would be a pretty fun like western show but eh, right. someday maybe it will 
Cool. Well, I can't wait to dive Great into it. Great camp read. Just a fantastic camp read. I finished it while camping. Just a perfect camp read. Awesome. Thank you. Um, yeah, that sounds great. I'm, I'm looking forward to diving into it. And if, you know, male driven narratives don't necessarily, uh, draw your attention. The one thing that I will say about Peter's writing is that it very much is grounded in the poetry that he, in poetry, which he came to love as a kid. And the rhythms of his writing are singular to Peter. And, um, you know, I, I would read him write a grocery list. You know, it would be wonderful to yeah. see what he did with that. So, yeah, take a peek at it when you get a chance. So we are going to tackle today um, an idea of when adventure changes your life. I've been thinking about this a bunch um, and whether I've been curious about whether people who are drawn to having adventure in their life come to it gradually and incrementally and fall in love with it bit by bit, or if they have one element that, or one trip or one experience that just completely changes things. Um, since I was in my teens, my life has revolved around adventures and I've been really blessed and grateful to be able to, do storytelling for my whole career around adventures. Um, and for me, I had a very specific trip that made all the difference for me. Um, but we're going to explore that today. I want to hear about how Justin came to it. And, um, you know, we're always thinking about the undercurrents for things, what's going on underneath adventures. AJ's tagline, our motto is the deeper you get, the deeper you get, which cuts all kinds of ways. Um, so, yeah. So my first trip, um, when I was in my teens, I think I was 15 years old. And, uh, you know, one of the things that Justin and I have in common is that we're, we're both only children. We both had dysfunctional or, uh, you know, difficult upbringings. Uh, Justin's dad wasn't around. My dad was around, but was an alcoholic. And, um, you know, we, we have a lot of similarities in sort of our, our paths, a lot of like very big differences, but a lot of similarities. And I know that for both of us, wilderness and outdoors have become a solve. Yeah. And, um, that's probably me, why we like was, Peter Heller so much. I know, right. That's why we like, <laughs> untethered thought about it until just now. Hey, that's me. Yeah. yeah. Wait a minute. He, that's me, but way, way more articulate and a way better writer. <laughs> yes. And answer <laughs> Um, so Anyway, when I was 15, my parents shipped me off to a mini outward bound trip. I grew up in Virginia and, um, they shipped me off to one. It was a, uh, kind of a canoe and backpacking trip trip down the new river in West Virginia. And it was seven days of climbing and rappelling and whitewater canoeing. And, you know, we had to spend the night out unsheltered and, <laughs> um, it was a profoundly impactful trip for me in a bunch of ways. The first was that I got to spend a week outside, you know, and we'd camped and stuff, but like a week outside with other kids, the, um, the guides were only a few years older than we were probably. Imagine and, how young um, they would look now. If you could see that, oh my God. Like the, the, I think about this all the time with my camp experience when I was that age, like they, they were probably like 14. And they were in charge. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. These, these were probably a little older because I was 15, but they were probably like okay, 19. All right, yeah. They were probably yeah, 19. Right? And I'm like, 
would you send your kid out for a week in the wilderness yeah. with a 19 year old, especially like these hippies that were the ones that were like, this was like, they probably, the but 70s. they probably taught you a lot. They probably taught you just as much as the, as wilderness did. They did te- teach me a lot. Uh, yeah. The, I know like every word of trucking from the grateful dead because of that trip still, See? because we yeah. sang that over and Thank over goodness. again. But the things that we did that were particularly formative for me, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't have a lot of faith or trust in people. I, you know, my family situation was such that um, I, I didn't learn trust. I learned not to trust. And this, you know, we did all sort of the, the, you know, those kind of trust building experiences. I don't think we stood in a circle and fell over, but we did, you know, we did rappelling. And I had a really difficult time trusting the rope and the equipment that I wasn't going to die. I was wow. terrified, yeah. actually. I was terrified because I just didn't, even though I watched people in front of me do it, I didn't have faith in myself that I was going to be able to operate the equipment properly. And I did it. And, um, you know, it was a painful experience. And then what was really interesting was I got to climb back up the rock. It was, I mean, it was just like 15 feet. It was like nothing, but I got to climb back up this rock after the rappelling. And, you know, on a Yosemite rating scale, it was probably like five, four, it was just super yeah. easy, but I had never like done rock climbing. I'm like, Wait, wait a minute, like this rock climbing stuff with a rope on is really, really, really fun. The rappelling, not yeah. so much, but the rock climbing <laughs> where I'm not dependent on the equipment. And then, um, you know, when we ran the, uh, like, I don't know what class the rapids were. It was probably, it was probably three. It wasn't that much, but like when we did this run through, I was just, I was too scared to do it. I just, I portaged around it and that <laughs> marked me for a long time. I was, mm-hmm. um, I was really hard on myself and I was kind of ashamed. And now looking back, I'm really empathetic to younger me. And I'm really like, I think about that person really gently. And I'm like, God, dude, look at your experience. You hadn't done any of these things, of course, that they were, you know, scare, scary for you. But those things, one, I fell in love with them. And then two, I used kind of the neg- negativity of that of like, well, that's not the person I want to be. Like, I want to be the, I want to be a self-sufficient or a resourceful person who can be the kind of guy that does these things. And that drove me for many, many years, for decades. I wanted to be, I wanted to acquire the skills to where I felt comfortable in doing those things, not just because I wanted to prove something to myself, although that was part of it, but also because I loved that so much and I wanted to be able to do those things safely and confidently. Yeah. That's interesting. I, um, I, I, I wasn't sure what you were going to say, because I feel like you've, you know, you've done a lot of pretty incredible things. I mean, you've been a lot of different countries. I mean, when you were with National Geographic, you've done trips I've could I will never do. Uh, so I, I, I'm delighted to hear that yours was also I guess it makes sense that you were that young that a trip like, you know, impacted you like that, because mine, mine is similar, although I was quite a bit older. Um, you might remember I, I wrote about it for AJ. It was one of the first essays I wrote for AJ, uh, which I believe you gave it the title nudity, fried chicken and a fifth of bourbon, which, uh, was a great, is a great title for this. But my first real adventurous trip that set me on this path was my first backpacking trip. Um, but for like all the same reasons that you just mentioned with your, with your, um, you know, for like very traditional summer camp experience. We didn't really, that to me, by the way, feels like a very East coast thing. I don't think, I don't think that those kinds of summer camps really happen out here. At least I don't know anybody who does that, who, I mean, I went to a thing in sixth grade where we went up in the foothills and like captured bugs for a week, but that, you know, like no, you know, nothing like these very 
old school like summer camps. I don't think that's a that's a kind of a West Coast thing. But um, but my my trip, I was probably I'm guessing I was twenty twenty one, um, and I got a wild hair to go backpacking in Big Sur. I don't remember what why I didn't go camping at that point. I surfed my brains out. That's all I really cared about. But for some reason, something appealed to me about going backpacking, and I didn't own any of the stuff. I had I went to a local Army Navy surplus store and bought the cheapest crap I could: an external frame backpack, uh, I, some like a, can, a literal canteen, um, some pots and pans. I don't know what I thought I was going to do with them. I didn't cook anything, <laughs> but um, you know, and it just kind of went out. I don't. And I, I went to a, I'm not going to mention it now because I mentioned it when I first wrote the piece and people got mad, but this, this area that, uh, I had heard about from somebody else, it was about a 10 mile hike from the road, which I didn't know at the time, but Big Sur is gnarly when you're hiking. It's, you just basically have to hit, hike from the ocean up over these like 2000 foot peaks. Um, it was a kick-ass trail. It still is, um, even if you're in really good shape, but I did it and I brought some like greasy fried chicken from my local grocery store and some you know bottle of booze and was scared out of my mind and didn't have a map um and loved every second of it i it was just an incredible experience but it was i was afraid of every noise i heard i was afraid that i would get lost i was afraid that i would fall into the river and couldn't get out i mean i don't know i but um it was it taught me that one you can do all those things two that I grew up just outside Big Sur. And of course, I mean, everybody thinks of Big Sur as this magical place, I suppose. But to me, it was just kind of the backyard. And it just like being able to look over the hills from the ocean and go, oh, yeah, like you can just go back there and just see what's back there. Blew my mind. I didn't know anybody that did that. I didn't grow up camping. You know, that was all new to me. And um, nothing has been the same since. And it just this, that sense of um, that you can do things on your own, that you don't need to ask permission that's probably one of the reasons i've never backpacked in yosemite because the permit process turns me off i don't want to have to ask i just want to go and that was a that was a great part of that um and nothing bad happened at all uh i had you know i ended up like camping next to the big sur river and this i mentioned in the piece randomly this big group of naked people came like walking by while i was sitting up there one day uh i guess people do nudist stuff out there (laughs) i didn't know i i I still don't know anybody who's backpacked there besides me but man, that was great, and I I'd love to recreate that at some point um, to do that same trip again um, with better equipment and knowing what I'm doing. But ever since then, that's all I've really wanted to do. And and uh, so yeah, what do you think is the core? Like for me, the two things were, and you touched on this about being able to do something yourself. You know, mm-hmm. I it, it not thinking you can do something and then doing it. You know builds tremendous confidence, which is one of the things I love about adventure. Um, and then just that joy of being outside, you know, what, what was, is there one thing from that that you felt like, uh, compelled you to want to go to keep doing it? Or was it a, a, a series of things? I, I don't know, because I'm assuming you have the same thing. Like I still, I feel the same way. Maybe, maybe some of that, that naked, like trepidation is gone. Cause I, I, at this point, I don't really feel like something's actually going to go wrong. But other than that, I feel exactly the same about going on a trip now as I did then. You know, like the same, like I can't believe I get to do this joy. I still feel that. And it, to me, it reminds me a little bit of surfing where I, I feel like, you know, I've surfed for almost 30 years at this point. And it's it's kind of cliche, but, you know, we often we'll talk about how we're really just trying to recapture that first wave. Like that, 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 that oh my God, joy of that first time standing up on a wave. 
And I kind of feel like that with, with camping and adventuring now. Like that was so different than anything I'd ever done and so expansive. And it really made the world, the whole world feel, I was just in a little part of Big Sur, but it made the whole world feel more complicated, but also more accessible. And uh, uh, that's, I think, what I'm still always looking for. You know, like if I'm going anywhere, it's, it's I want to see what's over that next peak. I want to see what's around that next bend. And I think um, it's it, there's just something about the first time that you get to do that, that it, that, joy so is is just mm, it's hard to find again but i feel like i can maybe and so i want to keep trying to do it and for some reason for me i it could be the same with you i don't i something about doing it by myself too is important most of my camp trips are solo um and maybe it was because my first one was i you know i don't know what it is but i don't really want to have to take someone else's wishes into account or worry about somebody else um it feels like a very personal thing for me um i i don't know if that's how you feel about it too but that's how I think I think of most of my adventures for some reason. Well, I think both of us do a lot of solo adventures and maybe prefer that to some extent, which makes me appreciate the ones that we've done together. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's Ironically. not being misanthropic. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, how do you think people have come to adventure? People who really live with adventure in their lives. It's important to them, no matter how many days they get out there, it remains important to them. Do you think that it's come gradually or do you think that there's been one catalytic moment? And as hmm. you were talking, I was thinking, I'll bet for most people, there is that one moment somewhere in there. And you know, my, we didn't have a lot of money growing up. I mean, our vacations were either staying with family or camping. And so it wasn't like I'd never been outside. Um, but I'd never had that kind of experience that I had, you know, fully invested in it the way I was, you know, for a week long trip in West Virginia off the grid. Um, and I, I just, I find myself thinking, I bet even for, you know, though it seems gradual, people probably have a moment where, <laughs> you know, they finally feel comfortable on skis or, you know, they've gotten over their fears of being in the ocean and now they feel comfortable paddling out alone to catch a wave Yeah. yeah. or, you know, they know how to stay dry. They finally know how to stay dry in a wet place. One of the things about modern culture, modern Western culture is that we, you know, we live our lives really disconnected from nature and we we also don't have the skills that we would have had as hunter gatherers 12,000 yeah. years ago or even in the early years of you know agricultural times where we we would have you know life and death and finding water would have been a natural part of your life we don't have any of those skills now and so part of what we call adventure being comfortable in nature is reacquiring those skills. And, it, and in some ways, I think it feels like coming home, right? Like <laughs> I should be able to figure out like where the sun rises and sets when I'm outside. Totally. I should be able to know like how to find water or to stay dry because for, you know, hundreds of thousands of years, that's what homo sapiens did. And that's why we're here. So I think that there's that element of, um, like, I think a core, mm -hmm. I, I, I would, I would propose that a core element of love, falling in love with adventure is discovering slash rediscovering that personal resilience and capability mm -hmm. that you have when you know how to backpack and not die. 
It makes you feel like a like a more complete person. Yeah, it, it, like you're more of a whole person. You're using parts of your brain and parts of yourself that maybe you didn't have access to before or that it, you didn't need to use before, maybe. I think a lot of it too, like you you mentioned that you were you kind of bummed that you that you bailed on that one rapid um on that first trip. I mean, like pushing through something like that is so important. You know, like that that's that happens to me every fall when the first like real like west swells start to hit and it's like, oh shit, I haven't been like an overhead wave in a while. And there's like a moment do I even care anymore? Do I need to do this? You know, and like I'll I'll try to back out of it. Like I don't really I've surfed enough, you know, and then I'll push through it and you, and you feel like, oh, right. Like this is, I like being this place where you push through the, that sort of that fear and you're, and you're, and you're it just it, it, knowing that you have that power over, over yourself is pretty important. So I think that aspect of it is, is probably like, it's pretty important for us, you know, especially starting out. Yeah. It, it depends though. I mean, and this is the thing that you, what I've learned, you know, and I've, Man, my journey it did end up taking me, has taken me to really incredible places. And I can't, you know, sort of believe like the level of skiing that I've been able to acquire and, you know, the mountain biking skills or wh whatever, you know, these, these just things that have, you know, I've gone so far from, you know, starting with nothing. And then it's, I found myself in like really incredible places is that you, I think you learn to have an honest assessment of risk. If I were to try mm -hmm. to go out surfing with you, I would be terrified and I, I would probably be in danger and vice versa. If I took you skiing, you know, let, you know, <laughs> it would, we it might be the opposite. So, and what I, what I learned from basically following people around all over the world who were so much better than I was at skiing or mountain mm -hmm. biking or any of these things, you know, who who had a much larger margin of safety than I did because of their skills is like, you do get to a point where it's not just about discomfort, but it is yeah. about safety. And so I think that the, the process of bringing more adventure into your life is where you, you start to like, look at that line and you start to mm -hmm. be able to assess objective and subjective skills more accurately. And it's not just about your fears. And, um, you know, I look back at that moment, you know, where I sat on the rock and was like, I'm, I'm not going, you know, I'm really comfortable with that decision. That was the right decision yeah. for me. Um, because it wasn't just about like, you know, I'm going to go out and spend the night in the woods without a tent. It was in the, in the summer, it was, it was a different thing. And I think this is something where, you know, as we talk about adventures and, you know, I think a lot about adventure journal being a very inclusive place. And I think about how outdoor recreation traditionally has been exclusive. You know, you need the gear and you need to be accomplished and all these things. And, you know, we do talk about those things with, with adventure journal and we explore the underlying goal. Like the number one goal of adventure is to explore what it means to live with adventure in your life. And adventure can be defined in a, in a lot of different ways. I want our stories to appeal. And I think that they do, for the most part, to appeal to everybody because adventure is something, the hunger for adventure is universal. And so where I'm going with this is that I think that this, this path, um, which we, you know, we both sort of are, have been on it, is that a lot of the things in the early days that people think they're gonna die and they're not gonna die. And it, it's becoming, <laughs> right. you know, and it's, be, it's starting to become more comfortable with what are initially discomforts like pooping outside, right? Yeah. yeah or, yeah. you know, or, you know, chewing on coffee beans because you 
forgot the fuel. <laughs> you forgot, to bring, them. <laughs> you forgot yeah. to bring them or, or whatever it is, you know, like, and I think that, you know, early humans, um, they wouldn't know these comforts that we take for granted now. And, um, I, 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 I just, I feel like adventure and the way that we're talking about it being more comfortable outside is, I keep coming back to this idea. It's coming home. And it yeah. feels so foreign. It, we've we've gotten so far away from it um, that it it feels foreign. So you know, I, I'm thinking like I'd be curious. So I have two kids, uh, a son and a daughter, and they're 26 and 22 right now. And I'd be curious to ask them about. Um, they both love adventure. They're both really passionate about it. I'd be curious to ask them like, did you have that one moment? Um, and what was that moment? And you have two kids, you have two daughters, and they're quite young. And so, um, you know, I'm wondering as you think about this idea of adventure changing your life, how you, if you think about that with, with your girls. Totally, of course. I mean, I do. I The other day, uh, we were driving past our local campground, um, just not far from our house. And, and uh, I point out to Olivia, that's my four-year-old, hey, you know, that was the first place you went camping with us or, you know, whatever we, or we were just camping there a month ago. We camped, we camped there all the time, just kind of pointing it out to her and just said, Hey, do you want to go, should we go camping there again this weekend? Maybe I can get a spot. She said, no, dad, I don't want to go there. I want to, I want to go somewhere I haven't been. And I want to go for six days, not one day. I want to go for six days. And I was just like, God, that's awesome. That is such a, like, I, I've felt so stoked to hear say that my two-year-old doesn't, doesn't care where we go. She just likes to run around and play outside. So I do think about this all the time, and especially because I didn't have that as a kid. So you know, but I also don't care. You know, like if they don't, if they end up, uh, you know, doing these things with my wife and I, and then they get older and they're just like, you know what, we're not really into being outside. You know, we're just not. You know what? Great. I I don't think I'm going to be bummed. You know, like that's their life. That's their decision to make. But but I do. You know have these fantasies of, of like fishing with my, with my daughters, you know, and, and, uh, kind of giving them the, the foundational adventure life that I never had, or at least that I had to create on my own. And, you know, I, I hope it's the same for them, uh, if they don't find it on their own the way that I did, but I don't, you know, I'm sure it's the same, but I, you know, I do, I think about this too. Sometimes my, my attitude towards like newcomers in the backcountry has kind of softened a little bit, especially with kids. But, um, you know, it, in the sense that you never know when it's somebody's like first time in a place and, and becoming comfortable with something and, um, doing what it takes to, to, to make that a pleasurable experience for you is, you know, if it's your first time, it's not going to be the same as it was for me. You know, I I mean, if I had saw myself with an external frame backpack and a bag of chicken seven miles into a big Sur trail, I I would stop that person now and be like, dude, what are you doing? You're going to, you're going to have a miserable, you can't do this, you know, like not realizing that they're, they're having a blast. You know, the first time my wife and I went back, back in together, it was a really short trip. And I knew, I knew better at this point, but it was like a two mile hike. And I just was like, you know, we'll just carry some extra, we'll just bring more stuff. We just carry it, you know? And a couple of people stopped us like, you got, what are you guys doing? And they're probably coming from way further in the back country, you know? And I was just like, look, you don't know me. You don't know what I'm, what I know, what I'm, what I'm, what I'm doing and what I'm comfortable with. And so anyway, I think about this sometimes if I hear someone with like music or something now, whereas a couple of years ago, my blood would just boil if I hear somebody with music while camping. But now I think, I don't know, this could be their first time, you know, like maybe this is what it takes for them to feel comfortable and to feel at home. Um, and that kind of thing. And so I've, I've become a bit less hard edged about that sort of stuff. Um, also 
I would do whatever it takes for my kids to be happy while camping. And if it requires them to like watch something on an iPad, maybe I have to do that. I don't, you know, hasn't come to that yet, but it might, you know? And so, um, eh, yeah, I don't know. You never know, I guess. You never know how, who's doing what and why out there. Yeah. You're impressively open-hearted about people with music. <laughs> it's, I, I didn't because used to be, you know, but I'm it, so it, hard edged about that. Uh, it drives me nuts. Yeah. Drives me nuts. That's that's the one thing, and and it, and it's because you're impacting the people around you. It's disrespectful to the people around you, and for f's sake, people, earpods, come on, you know, well, like yeah. I know. So, yes, yes, I know. Um, yeah, you know, I I think your point, I take it well. Or I take it. It's a, it's a strong point for me, which is that you just you don't know what somebody's catalytic moment is going to be, and. You just when it comes to your kids, you or or your friends, you know, you you just expose them to things, and you know, hope that they find it. And um, I I discovered so much about myself over my journey through adventure, and I I have been there have been so many rewards that have come to me from adventure that I just want to evangelize about it. But people have to come yeah. to their own things, and um, I will say as as we wrap up this part that. I do think that I know I, I know for a fact that a lot of the things that we might call pathologies in our culture will be that that a life outside, however you mm-hmm. come to that, car camping, canvas tent camping, backpacking, surfing, it doesn't matter. That most of the things I think that we're struggling with and seeking, that we can find a lot of that outside, either on our own or through friendships, because we basically want connection and mm-hmm. I, it, you know, science is starting to catch up with the biology of connection to nature, things like forest bathing and whatever, like nature is our home. We evolved to be outside. And so the things that we're struggling with or whether there's too much time on screens or whatever, like we just need to be outside and we need to be outside with the people that we love or our new friends or, or whatever. And everything else is going to be fine. Well, we should so. probably share that, that like rather than, the knee-jerk reaction if you're at like a campsite and you hear somebody playing some music rather than just getting pissed like the way i'm starting to think about it is like well isn't it cool that we both want to be out here like that like it's it that's a choice that you can make to get like angry or to be a little bit more understanding about it you know and like i I remember thinking of this like you i i hate public campgrounds i always just want to you know uh, it's dispersed camping or nothing for me nine times out of ten but with the kids, we might do we might do a regular campground. And I remember the last time we we were at one, and it was loud. But it's again, it's different when you have kids because you know your kids are loud too. But um, you do, you're just like this moment where you're like, wow, there's like a couple hundred people all in this one area, and we're all just out here because we just love being outside. Like, how cool is that? Like, that's more important than whether or not someone's playing like ACDC or something and, and annoying me. You know, I mean, at a certain point, yeah, that's gonna suck. But anyway, yeah, I feel that connection is super super important. Great. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. And I, I do, I really appreciate your, your open heartedness. I, I learn from that often. So I'm kind of curious what, um, what people listening or watching, uh, would say about their experiences. We would love if you're looking on watching on YouTube to have your comments down below and tell us about your path to adventure. And if you had one moment and what that moment was. Um, we'll also take emails and we'll um, bring them to you in future podcast episodes. You can always email us 
mail at adventure-journal.com and we're on all the usual usual socials so you can dm us there too we'd be uh we'd be happy to field those in in here um so we just uh speaking for both of us we i know we feel very fortunate to be in this position where we get to talk about adventure all the time and um we just love That's to share true. it and want to hear yours so yeah yeah speaking of connection <laughs> let's connect that way too you know <laughs> Exactly. Tell us why we're wrong. You know, maybe we're maybe maybe we're totally wrong. Maybe canvas tents suck. I don't. You know, I don't. You know, like whatever. Tell us. Talk to us. Well, adventure is personal, and it's one thing that I've definitely learned over the years. Like everybody has, everybody has a different path to it, and everybody takes away something different from it. And you know, the other thing that um, you know now, as I get older, as everybody else does. Uh, that your relationship with adventure changes over time. I, and, you know, my relationship with skiing has changed. My relationship with mountain biking has changed. And it will change totally. again. It might change back to what it was. You know, we, I think that it's, I often felt like there's such elitism in adventure that if you weren't getting 100 days in on skis, that somehow there, there was something yeah. wrong with you. And, I mean, we need to throw that crap out the window, right? Like, we should not be taking anybody else's inventory on how they're experiencing adventure. If you're getting out there and you're having a good time, it's fulfilling, and you're respectful of other people, amen. So. Yep. There's also nothing, no, there's also no way to make it a chore more than like feeling like you have to. That's the other, you know, like that if you haven't skied a hundred days or whatever, then you just like go out to do it to get your hundredth day. I mean like that, God, that feeling sucks. There's nothing worse right. than just be like, ah, I have to surf because the it's, the, it's warm. I guess I'll just put everything else aside and go for a surf. It's just like that, that then, then your things that you love become chores. So not, you know, that sucks. Amen to that. So we're going to do a segment now. Uh, over under, over underrated. We're going to start looking at elements in the outdoor recreation culture. And we're going to weigh in and we're going to see if we ag agree or disagree. So this episode, we're going to talk about the American Northeast. Is it overrated? Is it underrated? So for our purposes, we'll say, you know, kind of New England-ish, you know, mm -hmm, I don't, I don't mm -hmm. know where the line is if we're talking north of the Mason-Dixon line, but, you know, like New York, Massachusetts, Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine, that area. Um, I lived there for a while. I lived in Vermont. I grew up in Virginia. Justin has spent his um, whole life in the West, so, um, you know, the reason why I think this makes for an interesting topic in, in where we struggle sometimes because photography is such a hallmark of what we do in adventure journal, especially <laughs> in print. It can be a challenge in it with every magazine I've ever worked with. It can be a challenge to get photos that are as, um, what's the word? I don't want to say worthy. I don't want to say beautiful. Like, just like grand. Grand. I don't know that, that have the same, let's say impactful. Photos yeah. that seem to have the same impact as the images that we're sourcing from the Alps or from the American West. Yeah. And um, subjectively speaking, the Northeast is, for the most part, more subtle aesthetically than much of the West. Would you agree with that? Yes, absolutely. Uh, okay. Yeah, for a hard, hard agree. Yeah. Okay. So it's, you know, it doesn't get as represented in traditional outdoor media, um, partly because photos will often drive assignment of stories. Ski magazines generally are, they're not hanging their hat on the ski runs at Killington. Um, 
you know, they're writing stories about the Grand Canyon. And so yeah. the East often gets ignored. Yeah, it often just gets ignored, basically. <laughs> and so what I think happens um, is that there's this perception that it's not as legitimate as the West. Is mm -hmm. that the right way mm -hmm. to, it's not on par well, with I, the West? I have that, I have that perception. So yes. tell me, Western, as a Western newcomer man. to the West, I've only been here for 30 some years. Uh, what's your take on the American East? Like, what do you think about recreation back there? And what's your sense of public land? And I would like to spend more time there. I mean, I've been to Maine, uh, liked it a lot. Would definitely like to get up to Nova Scotia. There's phenomenal surf there. This is a great time of year to go. Um, my wife and I have talked about driving a van into, you know, up there and like going over to Newfoundland and stuff, I, which I guess you know, that, that I'm going to put that in this geographical sort of zone. Um, but I, I can't help it. I've always been this way. Like if there aren't legit mountains, I just, I, I, I I'm, okay. I'm like a walking personification of what you just said. Like there needs to I'm be, let you I realize yourself. that more people die on Mount Washington than anywhere else in the world or whatever. But like, I just, I don't know. Like I, I, I look at, I, I tend to kind of scoff a little bit when I see pictures of people on the Appalachian trail and it's like green Hills, like I have outside my house. And it's like, well, Dude. is that really, is that really oh. the mountains? That's true. You're I You're can't killing help me. It. I, okay. I know. Let's let's break down. Let's talk some specifics here. Okay. So, all right. If we're talking skiing, uh, we know that the snow in the east is it's there's much less of it. The seasons are shorter. The vertical is shorter. There's much less backcountry. There's a lot less. Uh, I don't say I don't know if it's less public land. There's fewer acres overall, yeah. I would say, than the kind of expanses that you have publicly. So like by the numbers, I think, you know, Western snobbery probably has a point. Um, you know, when I lived in Vermont, we would you would get these you'd have this stretch where it didn't get above above zero for like two weeks and then all of a sudden it was forty five degrees and mud season was there. It was just you would get this whiplash in the summer you would have like horrible heat and humidity. The surf is really inconsistent along the coast. So like if you if you just look at it by the numbers, you know, maybe is a, a tough ask. And, you know, maybe that's also what you're thinking of. And, um, you know, I'm kind of curious, like what, so your trip to Maine was an AJ assignment. It was a piece for yep. print and it was on, we sent you back there to grain surfboards. I think it's in York, Maine. Is that yep. right? York, very southern Maine. But yeah, very York southern Maine. Maine. Yeah. And your your task was to make your own hand handmade wooden surfboard. So doing that, and I don't think you had much surf when you were there. But like, what did like specifically did it did anything change with your perception of the well, East yeah, Coast and totally. all these things? It, no, it did. It did because we we um, the well one of the dudes that run grain are epic. So like. The they're all, they they do all kinds of incredible stuff. There's a million little islands around there that they all boat to. They're all like old boat builders and stuff. But one of the guys that um, was showing me the ropes, uh, we went out canoeing one day in a, a legit old town canoe, you know, and like pushed through some little inlet. I mean, it's nothing but inlets. You know, the coastline is so different than it is here. Um, in this beautiful little bay, and like I could see this potential for waves there. Um, and he talks about there's lobster traps on this, on the, on the point, you know, and he'll just go and like fish for lobster and like surf right there. He'll paddle out, he'll paddle his canoe with his board on it. 
And like, there's nothing around. I mean, there's no houses or anything where we were. I'm sure you go next cove over and there's like a house, but I mean, where we were, it looked pretty empty. And like, you know, Maine has a lot of like wilderness areas in it too. But that moment was perfect to me. Like it was a perfect, perfect afternoon, a perfect moment. And I was super envious that he got, that he got to do that sort of thing on a regular basis. And you know, I could slide into that life tomorrow, no problem. But I, that doesn't help my perceptions of the fact that like, it doesn't have the the openness that we have here. I mean, that that's to me that's that's most of it. That I assume that most of the land is not public. That I assume that over every little hill there's probably a, a little town or something like that. Whereas here, you know, you could drive for three days and not see anything. You know, if I just point my car east, you know. So there's a little bit of that element to it too. But I definitely was like, oh, I got to get back to Maine. I want to get back here in the fall. I want to get back. I want to get back here when the leaves are turning and when the waves are firing and when all these lobster shacks are actually open. Um, cause it was, I was there in the dead of winter and everything was closed, but yeah, I was intrigued, um, for sure. But it's just not, I don't know. I, it's hard to imagine it being quite as like, you know, that sort of feeling of like okay. oh, the presence of God, you know, that kind of thing. Okay. All right. So American Northeast overrated, underrated or appropriately rated. I'm going to go appropriately rated actually saying all that. Cause I, I recognize that it's an awesome, everywhere's cool. I mean, you go to like the central Valley is kind of beautiful. I mean, like everything's cool, but it's not as good as the West. There's just no, I'm sorry. It's just not. So I'd say, I'd say all it's right. a- adequately rated. Well, I think that's kind of wishy-washy. If you ask me, I think that you, I know <laughs> that in your heart, you think it's even with what it is. I think it's overrated. That's what I think you're thinking. So you're just yeah, afraid to say true. it. Because you don't want to alienate all those people back there. Well, I, all right. God, it's hard to say. I haven't spent much time. I know. Well, that's just it. You don't know it like I know it. And I've been out in the West for a long time, so I can't. I mean, I grew up there, but still, there's a lot. There's so much that I don't know. But I think you know where I'm going with this. It's underrated. It's absolutely underrated. And the only, not the, the, the aesthetic beauty or the grandeur is not the only way by far to yeah. measure a place. And yeah, it's, it's harder to like, you can't drive. There are places you could probably drive for a couple hours and, you know, feel wildernessy, but like, it's just not the West, but the things that are there are astounding. And I mean, the Appalachian trail and being able to hike that distance, you know, in the woods is, is pretty incredible. Like the mountain biking in so many different places there is insane. The skiing is the skiing, you know, the, it, it is what it is. The humidity is what it is, but like, you know, I learned, I learned climbing there. I learned ice climbing there. Like in the, the fall issue of AJ, AJ 30, we have this amazing piece about riding, uh, swimming, excuse me, about open water swimming, Western Brook Pond, which is a fjord, um, up in Newfoundland. And so there's just so much that you can do in the winter issue, which we're working on right now. We have a piece about guiding in the presidential mountains of New Hampshire. They are the real deal, even if they don't look like the Tetons, the Adirondacks. I mean, just, you know, the diving off the coast. I mean, there's just so much there. So I, as a magazine editor, the photography is a challenge. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't rise to the challenge. As a passionate outdoor lover, like, man, there's just so much to do. So it does not get the due that it should. It's underrated. Okay. I'm right. Yeah, I know. Okay, whatever. We're not going to agree. We're often not going to agree. <laughs> 
Well, everybody, that's going to bring us to a close. Thank you so much for listening or watching. Uh, just a couple house cleaning, housekeeping details. One, this is our first podcast. I want to know what you think. Did you dig it? Did you not? Leave a comment. Let us know what you want us to tackle. Let us know what you would like to address in over under. Yes. Let us know what kind of gear you want us to talk about and to investigate. We want to hear from you. So uh, subscribe um, through at YouTube or whatever your podcast format is. Um, you can also subscribe to our newsletter. It goes out every week. That guy writes it, and mm -hmm. uh, it's mm -hmm. pretty awesome. And you can do that through our website, adventure-journal.com. You can follow us at Instagram, just Adventure Journal. And most important, um, our best efforts go into the magazine. That's where our best stories are. That's what gets the lion's share of our, our work. It's where the best photography is. And if you love adventure enough to be listening here, you're going to love it. You can go ahead and subscribe at subscribe to aj.com. That's subscribe to aj.com. Or just go to our site and you can pick up a single issue if you want to check it out first. Okay, guys. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs>